Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 344. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music heard at the beginning and end of this show. They're online at respectsextet.com, and they've recorded a lot of music since they recorded the music that became the theme to this show. You'll find their albums at respectsextet.com, and please do buy them. Support independent music and support them directly, and trust me, you're going to dig the records. They're fantastic musicians. Thanks also to Dave Rabel. He designed the show's logo, and he is online at twitter.com slash Rabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. All About Jazz carries this show on their website, allaboutjazz.com, and they've got a widget that you can install on your website. It's quite simple, and it will show the latest episode of the Jazz Session on your site. If you want to get an idea of what it looks like, just go to thejazzsession.com, and you'll see in the upper left corner the box that has the picture of the current artist. That's exactly what the box will look like on your webpage. If you want to install that widget, which is, as I said, fairly simple, just go to allaboutjazz.com and search for Jazz Session Widget. And if you need any help installing it, let me know. And if you do install it, also let me know, because I will mention you on my newsletter, or even in my newsletter, if you prefer prepositions that make sense. This show is member-supported. That means, although it is free for you to listen to, it is not free for me to make. And your memberships are directly keeping me uh, living indoors and having food. And that is what is required in order to keep bringing the jazz session to you. So please do become a member. There's no time like the present. It's super easy. You can do it for as little as $10 a month. You can also pay in yearly sums. There are three yearly levels and three monthly levels. And right now, at the middle or top level, either monthly or yearly, the next two people who become members will get a copy of Anthony Wilson's CD-DVD set called Seasons, which is really fantastic. My guest today is the saxophonist Tim Byrne. He has had many different bands. He's had at least two of his own record labels, and he is on tour with his current band, Snake Oil. If you go to Tim's website, which you'll find linked in the show notes at thejazzsession.com, you can see all the tour dates. They are on tour starting now in February 2012 in both the U.S. and Europe, and uh, Tim gives a little account of where they're going toward the end of the interview, but obviously a more complete set of tour dates and ticket information and all those things are at his website. So please do catch this band, which features Matt Mitchell on piano, Oscar Noyega on clarinet, Chess Smith on drums, and of course Tim on the saxophone. We'll hear some music from the new album Snake Oil, which is also the name of the band, and then we'll hear my conversation with Tim Byrne.
My guest is Tim Byrne. His new project is Snake Oil with uh, Chess Smith, Matt Mitchell, and Oscar Noriega. And I'll just mention that Chess and Matt have both been on the show and are in the archives. And it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Great. Thanks, Jason. I wanted to start by asking about whether each of your bands is formed to deal with some musical idea or some kind of new sonic palette, something that you're hearing in your head that the last project or the other current projects aren't addressing in some way. Um, I would say... That's a good question. <laughs> you caught me by surprise. Um, <laughs> or I can just ask you what instrument you play if you want an easy one. <laughs> no, no, no. But I mean, I've never had, I've never thought of it that way. I think it's usually I'll get some ideas for instrumentation, but the personality is sort of equally important. So I'll try to find, I like to say, I like to just try to find weirdos or oddballs <laughs> or, or people who aren't quite out there yet. Um, and then, you know, people who are kind of in their, their, um, not formidable, uh, not fully formative. formed yet. Yeah. Formative. Yeah, exactly. Stage in their development where I can kind of, it's like having a big piece of clay, really interesting clay to work with. Um, and so, uh, but, but in this case, I mean, if I think back, there's a lot of bands to think about, but. There's always some instrument idea. Like when I first started playing with Craig, I think the idea was to simulate. Just mention that's Craig Taborn. Craig right. Taborn, yeah. uh, bass, to have that bass guitar capability in one instrument, you know, the noise factor of the roads and, and the electronics to sort of combine and, and, you know, kind of accomplish what two or three instruments were doing before. Um, in this case, I wanted something, I didn't want two saxophones. I wanted another instrument. Um, at first I kind of thought I wanted a cello, but I ended up, uh, going with clarinet and, and I wanted something pretty transparent and I wanted some, a sound that was, that could be, you know, an ensemble sound that could be delicate and, you know, have a wide dynamic range. Um, cause I wanted to write some some stuff that was maybe a little more, um, I guess delicate's a good word. Mm. You know, chamber music is what everybody says. I'm not sure. I don't even know what that means, but, <laughs> yeah. but chamber music's okay. It just has a kind of a classical illusion that might not be true, um, in this case, but, um, you know, so clarinet players, I, you know, I bumped into Oscar and, and, uh, one day and played with him and I really liked his sound, you know, sound is really the main thing. Um, and so Oscar had just beautiful sound and I met Craig or I met Matt maybe 10 or 12 years ago, um, through the mail. He was a student in Rochester and he had written me a letter about scores. And so we talked then and then we didn't 
communicate again until like 10 years later when he showed up. We were teaching together, and, and that's where I got in touch with him, and then I realized how great he was. And, and chess I met through Mary Halverson, and when I played with chess, you know, I kind of like finding people where the the connection, there's a good connection, but it's not obvious at the first time. So there's a lot of potential and there's a lot of, uh, I almost don't want to know what they can do. I like to find out on the job, sort of. And with chess, I kind of had no idea really what he was capable of. So I kind of learned it as we went along, but I just really liked him and I liked his, uh, I liked his approach and I liked his attitude a lot. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this was the, this was the band. One thing about both Matt and Chess that I remember we talked about in their interviews is that uh, both have a a very kind of precise approach to their music, but that also allows for a lot of freedom. I know that they both spend a lot of time kind of working on almost etude-like yeah. approaches to improvisation to really work out musical well, they problems. they both internalized a lot of rhythmic information. You know, Chess studies Haitian music and studied classical percussion. Uh, Matt studied everything. <laughs> Um, so between the two of them, they can internalize, you know, pretty complicated rhythmic things. The key word is internalize. I mean, it doesn't, they don't play them. It's not math when they're doing it. You know, it's really rhythm. And so, uh, you know, not that my music, I mean, there's some rhythmic, there's probably some rhythmic complexity, but it's not, it's not about playing odd times or, you know, blowing over odd forms. But there are, rhythmic things that are unusual that that these guys can pretty much internalize pretty quickly which is nice um the other thing is they just have a rapport that that they developed really in this band you know it's one of the few times i've had a band where that those two guys for sure kind of developed their whole thing starting in this group they hadn't played together in any other situation which i think is probably interesting I'm not sure why but is there a does the generational combination make a difference too? Uh, kind of not really. Um, you know, I I find. I mean, I'm looking for people who who 
you know, haven't been jaded, haven't given up or haven't, <laughs> you know, been beaten down by this whole thing. And because, you know, it's crazy. I mean, you rehearse a lot. You know, a lot of times you don't get paid very much. Um, sometimes you play for 20 people. Sometimes you play for a thousand. Um, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. I mean, there, there isn't a lot of obvious, tangible, um, results like there are in job. You know, you do your job, you get paid. It's simple. It's clear. You know, so I mean, you really have to love doing it. And the older you get, the less a lot of people like to rehearse or like to, they want to know what they're going to get back before they put anything into it. Whereas these guys are just, they know that if they put something into it, they'll get something back. It may not be, you know, a tangible thing, but they're not thinking that way. And so I tend to find younger musicians because that's, you're more likely to find that attitude with younger musicians. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously there's exceptions, but you know, if I call somebody up and say, Hey, there are going to be five rehearsals. We're playing at Corzo. Most likely it's going to be a younger musician who's interested, you know? Sure. And just for people outside of New York, Corzo is a not particularly lucrative place to play. Although yeah, it's, it's often a fun place good, to play. Good crowds, you know, right? Yeah. More than hundred bucks. <laughs> right. Whatever, you know? <laughs> And so that's important to me to know that they're in there for the right reasons because, you know, I feel the same way. You know, if whenever someone calls me for a gig, I don't ask how much does it pay, how many rehearsals are there. I just say yes or no based on whether I think the music's interesting. And so finding like-minded people is really important to me. And it gives me a lot of confidence and it encouraged me to want to, to write a lot because they were hungry, you know, mm. for it. You know, and so, so it's a great combination for me. And, and I haven't had a band like that in a while. You know, I've been kind of avoiding the issue for the past, you know, five years, just doing a lot of improv bands and, and things that were um, low maintenance in terms of rehearsal and stuff. It's fun stuff, but, but I've been kind of in the back of my mind wondering about, you know, whether I was going to be able to get another band together that, that would do that, you know, and, and want to play a deal with a lot of written music and so on, you know, cause I, I kind of, you know, once I, when I'm doing a lot of improv stuff, I start pining for a composition and vice versa, you know, and just to balance things out. So were so you I, composing during that time when you didn't have a I band to play the music? doing a lot. I actually wasn't, I kind of hit a dry period where I just, I didn't really have a band per se. And I didn't have any recording options other than myself. And so I was pretty anxious to do a, a project like this and do a studio recording, but I didn't want to do what I usually do and just rush into it. I just wanted to wait and really do something, you know, that I thought was special. And, and, and so, you know, it was worth it. You know, I waited around and, and it took us a while to record too, which is unusual for me. Can you say more about that? Well, you know, normally I get a band going, we get some music going and I'm, I'll document it, you know, at least once a year. And, and I had a pretty good role going that way. And, um, for some reason, I've decided that I think because of the, you know, for one thing, the record industry is so screwed up. Um, you can put out a record every five minutes and it really doesn't make any difference anymore, you know, and especially if you're putting them out yourself or you're on a small label. And, you know, not that I care. I don't really care about press. I don't really care about accolades. I want to work. And I realized it was harder to work doing it the way I was doing, you know, I don't send out promos, I just sell them. And, and so I thought, well, maybe I'll re-enter the system mm -hmm. and see if it works. And, you know, the best place to go 
in my opinion, is ECM. You know, I mean, because they still, when they promote things, it's based on touring. It's not based on print ads or, you know, it's a real a real thing that you're selling, you know, that you go out and do the tour. There's a real connection, emotional connection, I think, between the label and the music and the artist that, that's difficult to find. I mean, there's a lot of labels who, who are, you know, their hearts are in the right place. They either don't have the means or they don't understand marketing, that that marketing isn't advertising. It's something else. You know, it's 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 promotion, but it's also you kind of have to be um, got to you got to show some passion. I mean, the music people like the music because it's passionate. You know, and and a person who's passionate about the music can sell it. You know, that's just obvious. So um, that exists at ECM, and so you know I wanted to be on ECM, and for all the other reasons, you know, the quality of the recordings got to you know. He let Matt, Manfred Eicher let Matt go and pick out a Steinway at the Steinway. You know, that's like, <laughs> Matt's like, really? You know, there he is. At, you know, he's probably never made a record in his life. And he's sitting in Steinway trying Steinway D's for hours. You know, and that's already just, whoa, you know. Yeah. So it's it's pretty serious commitment to the music. And so all of that, you know, was was something that I, you know, I just wanted to do it. I hadn't done it, you know. Talking about this album from the standpoint of, of composition, can you uh, did you start writing the music after you knew who was going to be playing it? How did that work? Well, yeah, I mean, some of the music there were there were a number of things that were rejects from other bands or mm-hmm. things that I didn't follow through on that this band motivated me to dig up. You know, I have these giant scorebooks that I I read everything by hand, so I I have tons of sketches that are that I never throw away. And in this case, the instrumentation and also somebody like these guys, you know, like Matt, who will read anything and wants to read anything and wants it to be as hard as possible, you know, loves the challenge. I was like, great. I got all these old things sitting around that now I can actually finish. And and so there's I'd say a third of it was stuff like that. And then and then new stuff. And, and once, you know, you can rehearse and people aren't going to be bugged 
you know, they want to play it, it just opens up, you know, then I'm like so motivated to write, you know. Writing's not really, it's not much inspiration involved. It's really, it's work. And if you're getting results, then it's fun work, you know, but it's definitely work. And, and so I was, I was really motivated and I never have a hard time writing once I have something, to, you know, that I'm writing for and a reason to do it. And so, so I went nuts. I don't remember when it was. It might have been a couple of summers ago and I just wrote a ton of shit. And that first year, you know, every time we had a rehearsal coming up, I'd try to write something and, and then bringing out all these old things and I rearranged some Julius Hemphill stuff. And anyway, we ended up with, you know, probably four or five sets of music that, that we could actually play. And, and that's rare for me to have a band that's that committed, mm. at least recently, you know, and who had the time and, and, um, so, yeah, I mean, now, I mean, it's, I, I don't really need to write anything at the moment, but, you know, even right before we did the record, I was pulling out stuff and, and, uh, so it's, you know, that definitely motivated me. I, I would say there were a couple of years in there where I wasn't really writing that much. When you bring uh, these compositions into the band, then how much... How much do they change as a, as a result of these players from well, your original vision? The written notes are eighty five percent there. I do revise things. I mean, I do like to revise, um, but uh, you know, the improvisations are the wild card. And I would say the first year, what's typical with my bands because the the the, the written stuff, there's a lot there and you get to the improv and you kind of the the initial reaction is to okay it's open so i'll just go completely away from the music or you just take a big sigh and go you know and then start something <laughs> totally different and i kind of let it go for a while and then then i started hinting at things with the band like you know don't be afraid to use you know obvious things like don't be afraid to use the material or mine the material for your ideas don't you know avoid it and don't think that it's not relevant because it's there to promote improvisation it's mm. not there to just to um uh, decorate the piece you know or make it more listenable so once i said little things like that it really freed everybody up to not have to be so creative all the time and uh and matt's really good at you know there are a lot of the the music on the record was really you know i agonized over what tunes to put on there you know that would complement each other and there's a certain harmonic, um, they're a lot more lush and harmonic than, than probably past things I've done. And it was by design, you know, again, because it's an area that I've probably, um, haven't explored as much and having a band that wanted to do that and having these instruments, I thought, oh, this could sound really cool. And, and there are a lot of implied harm harmonies or harmonic areas that Matt's really free to, you know, especially explore. And he does a great job of kind of extrapolating things from the written music and, and just kind of continuing the uh, vibe of what was written. Mm -hmm. um, and so the record is probably the one of the great examples of that. You know, he really pulled it off. And, and you can hear, you know, a lot of tunes like Spare Parts and Simple City and... Uh, yield you know where he's really playing off of the tunes and it infects everyone in a good way 
And so it becomes, you know, the improvisations become quite um, compositional, which, you know, or structured, whatever you want to say. But still, it's still um, uh, spontaneous. So mm. it's really, you know, I find that really interesting rather than saying, okay, let's play over these 13 bars and cycle it. And these are what those chords are called, you know, which is another way to go. But I like this way of kind of spelling out the chords, but not naming them and just, you know, allowing this kind of freeish relationship between everybody. But once everyone hears these things enough, you know, it is a, it is a kind of a form in a way. In, in freer or I don't know, more adventurous or whatever, Stupid yeah, term I can come up with. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what you to call say it. It's freer. I mean, it's not the worst thing. Sure. In the world. In, in okay. So when people are playing freer music, do you think there's a a tendency to not want to use the material or some? some no, I don't. I just think that when you have some four part contrapuntal madness that you've just played through, it's in t it's an inst an instinct, you know, to just okay. Now I'm at the improv. You just kind of hesitate mm. until you're until you've internalized the material. And that's all I'm saying. You know, you get to this very definite ending and then it's like, you just kind of go, you freeze for a second. And that's pretty normal in almost all my bands. And then once you know the stuff, it's, there's, there's less and less of a difference between the written and the improvised sections. You just kind of get, you just go off the momentum of the piece. And, and, but at the beginning, there's always this, question oh yeah it's free now what, i wonder what he wants or it's also a thing of you know them trying to sort me out and figure out because i'm not going to say too much unless i have to and so they're wondering oh yeah i wonder if tim wants us to just totally depart or you know so there's just little hesitant questions sure and and, and you know my thing is with the written music i just want to um cause something to happen that wouldn't happen if we were just playing improvising mm. And taking these guys who are really, you know, like it's, you know, it's like painting, you know, you have these incredible supplies. So it's just up to me to come up with, surround them with enough um, interesting music that it makes something happen that, that I think is interesting that wouldn't have happened. Thank you. 
You said at the beginning, uh, I think you were referring to chess, that you like to find people with whom there's a connection, but it seems like there's a lot of undiscovered exactly. territory there. How, yeah. how do you how do you know that's the case? I don't know if it's something you can well, say. Well, it's a gut words, feeling, but, you know, okay. and it's, it's some a lot of it's personal. You know, I just found he says a real no bullshit approach. He's not wasn't trying to please me. He wasn't he wasn't trying. You know, he was just doing his thing, and you could just tell. You know, sometimes that that someone you know he's serious about it but at the same time they're not going to just capitulate to your ideas you know you need some strong thinkers independent thinkers you know for me because i don't want to be the one who's always coming up with the ideas like hey then if we do this and let's do this and you know it's nice to have input and and just like it's nice to have input from the producer you know like somebody like manford or david torn Mm. you know i like i like having ideas from I don't want to be the one who comes up with all the ideas. You know, I think my, you know, I'm limited. There's some areas I'm just not going to come, you know, think about that somebody else might from a, from a different perspective. And, and at this point, having made a million records, I kind of want that input. You know, I need it in some ways. Yeah. I, I remember Matt saying, uh, when you said that, it r- reminds me, Matt said in his interview that he wrote, he's written music for you to play. And he's thought that his compositions sounded like Tim Byrne pieces. And then he realized, well, it's because Tim is playing them. And that's, right. there's a certain, there's a certain Tim Byrne-ness that's going right, to be, right, be incorporated right, right. in that. Exactly. Yeah. And it sounds like in a way you're coming to that same issue from the opposite direction. You need people who are going to feed in some strong yeah, ideas. I want, I want the personality. I mean, I don't want it to sound homogenous. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm encouraging these guys to take, responsibility for the results i guess have you always felt that way about how you i have I, I think my earlier bands because of my limitations as a player possibly um or lack of confidence i i arranged things more i mean the results were good i mean i didn't mind the results but there were definitely arrangement heavy mm-hmm. you know there wasn't for music that was supposedly free there wasn't a ton left to chance but at the same time, you know, there was a lot of room for interpretation. You know, it didn't sound the same each time. But but the stuff has definitely gotten, the writing's gotten more comp- denser and the improvising's gotten freer in a way. I think it's fair to say that ECM has some kind of a sound. I mean, they've worked on it for 30-something mm-hmm. years now. Is, is having this record on ECM, does it influence the fact that it's kind of lush and chambery, well, whatever that means? The sound of the record enhances the the music, mm. and I, you know, if I didn't know that, I mean, I didn't try to. I didn't just pick tunes that would sound good. I mean, I think my record sounds different than other ECM records I've heard. Sure. In terms of, you know, I know everybody talks about the reverb. I think it sounds different. You know, I was at the mix. My opinion was definitely solicited, and he's, you know, he's. It's not a stop, it's not a set thing like this is what you do and this this is how the piano's supposed to sound, this is how the saxophone sounds. I mean he was definitely reacting to us and so whatever the result is, I'm extremely happy with how it relates to the music. Um I definitely what I did choose I mean I choose I chose the music because I was doing a studio record. And so I said, Okay, what tunes you know, what are some some tunes that that would really benefit from the uh 
studio microscope and the and the level of detail that you can get out of a record, and also the fact that Manfred's produced you know hundreds of classical records. I wanted to benefit from that, you know, and so I I was definitely trying to go work to his strength, what I thought his strength was, and and to my you know what I wanted to get out of this recording, which was just you know the the amount of detail like this music if we'd recorded it live unless it was an incredibly good recording you wouldn't hear all the detail mm. and so now you can hear every single thing the piano's doing you know so so i was aware of that for sure you know and i picked tunes that would that would definitely um benefit from that kind of scrutiny does this music go to different places live maybe that's a stupid question but uh it goes to different it, goes, it went to different places in different takes mm. i mean it, the, you know, each take was totally different. Um, not that we did a lot of takes. Um, live, I would say it's, it's longer. I mean, you know, you tend to, with an audience, you tend to, um, um, things just are, they're longer. You know, I think things automatically are more concise in the studio. You know, maybe Simple City and a live gig might be 20 minutes instead of 14 or, you know. Sure. And I, I, you know, I just think, you know, it's like a movie, you know, you have a great scene, but is it really need to be there? And so you cut it, you know, and it's the same thing between live and studio live. It's, it's fine. You know, it's just more, more good stuff. But with a record, I, I like to really, um, you know, streamline them. I like, I like for it to be, um, more concise, mm. which is laughable because most people complain that my tunes are too long. But for me, this record's concise. <laughs> you know, I don't want to. You know, I don't want it to be concise to the point where you can't hear the transitions. Right. Because then it's just that's too easy. You know, yeah. it's kind of a cop out for me. Um, I think you need to hear. I think that's what makes. It's like cutting dialogue out of a movie or something. You know, it's sort of like. Okay, we're going to make this really easy for you. You know, we're not going to put in anything vague or <laughs> this is what's going to happen. And then it goes to this, you know. Right. So I give people more credit than, you know. I'm interested in how this has come up on this show a lot recently for for whatever reason, maybe because I keep asking it, uh, but how kind of cognizant you are of the audience's 
live and how much they they factor into what's happening yeah on yeah stage. i mean why play live if it's not if it doesn't add anything but you'd be surprised that a lot of people answer exactly the opposite to that which i never really believe when they say it but audience is huge i mean i never set out to please them but i never set out to not please them i mean i don't say <laughs> oh but i bet if i play this tune first they're gonna really go i you know i most places we play there's a lot of trust so i mean we can mm. but that's one of the things like there's certain clubs in europe where we play a lot, where you just know the second you set up and start playing, you can do anything you want. And that feeling contributes to the music. There's no question. You know, there's some places where you can hear a pin drop and then we get into these super quiet, detailed, weird moments that you might not get into in a club with a bar, with a restaurant, you know, things like that. I mean, it's, and, and also, yeah, I mean, like, uh, there's clubs in New York, you know, like that Winter Jazz Fest. You play in these places where everybody's talking, and you don't tend to play your best music, and you don't, there's areas you just don't go to, because when you do, all you all you really hear is somebody talking at the bar or something, and and it affects the music, you mm-hmm. know, and, and that's, yeah, that's why it's important. Or walking into a room where it's full, there's 200 people packed into some little place, and you're just like, oh, yeah, I can't wait to play, you know stuff like that or you walk into it conversely and there's two people takes you a minute to get going sometimes yeah you know but but it's not a you know i've never been condescending about it like oh you know like somebody will say oh yeah these people aren't really used to this kind of music i'll just say yeah whatever you know (laughs) you know if you're honest about it it, it, uh, it's much better than trying to figure out what people like that never works you know that has to be that has to be a certain there has to be something honest for that to work, I think. Does inattentiveness on the part of the audience ever fuel the band in a positive way? Where you really dig yeah, into Yeah, yeah, definitely. Sometimes you just get pissed off and you just go, fuck, the, you know, I'm just going to play, you know, and, and yeah, it depends, you know, mm. but, but, you know, sometimes like I'll notice, if I notice somebody walking out, I'll get really distressed, you know, <laughs> like, oh, damn, you know, <laughs> even though it's stupid, but, right. you know. But a perfect case, you know, we just, I just played in Brazil with uh, David Torn and Chess. And, uh, we didn't know anything about Brazil. We never played there. These guys, they were really cool. They, you know, it was clear that not many people knew who we were in the audience. And friends of mine said, Oh yeah, Brazil, man, they're probably not going to dig it. Da, 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 you know, but David, none of us, we, we weren't, for some reason, we just weren't that concerned. We really liked the people, so the promoters, so we were like, gee, I hope everybody likes it. Was this in a club or at a festival? It was a theater, a, a small theater. theater. Okay. And so we just got up there and just played the weirdest stuff you can imagine. And the and the response was really good. Not a few people walking out, but, but like the head of the art center, who was supposedly pretty conservative, loved it. And, you know, they really responded to our honesty Mm. and responded to us as people, you know, they're hanging out with us before the gig. And I think all of that contributed to them trusting us and the fact that no one really told them what kind of music we were going to play, you know, and it was all improvised. Um, And so it was a really good experience, whereas if we'd gone in there and listened to everybody, it would have been like, oh, maybe we should dumb it down a little or play a tune or, you know. Yeah. Which I'm glad we did. We never would have done, but. But it was encouraging just to see, you know, because it was it was it was pretty intense. And one of the sets, I think, it was like an hour and forty five minutes without stopping. 
So, I mean, I think I would have even had a difficulty. So it was impressive. You know, they were just like, great. Here's some, you know, art or whatever. Right. Let's check it out. Yeah. You, uh, you were talking in the very beginning about the record business being messed up. And I mean, you've had your own, uh, labels, you know, for 30 plus years yeah. at this point. Um, what, what accounts for that kind of, that independent, I'm going to do it myself. What streak. accounts? Why do yeah, I do why it? Do you, why did you do it? Th- I mean, you did it that way when people weren't really doing it. I did it, it at the beginning. I did it because it didn't even occur to me that anyone would record me and pay me to record. And I wasn't even seeking it out. Mm. And I'd learned from Julius Hemphill how to do it. It was pretty simple. Um, then I did some things for labels. And then I did it by choice. Then I said, oh, you know what? I'm not that impressed with these labels. I'm not that impressed with how they market the music. I think I can do it better. And I think I can make more money doing it my way. So I came up with this idea of, uh, you know, sort of like fake bootlegs um, and, and these cardboard covers and so on. And, and I had Steve Byram. I had a lot of help. And, and so I figured, well, if I was a cons- if I was someone into this music, if I was into me as a fan, what would I want to hear? And my answer was I'd want to hear decently recorded live recordings with really f- messed up packaging, you know. And so I'd want to see as much of our personality as possible. Mm. And so I did that first unwound and we did exactly that. And it was a huge success for me. You know, I was able to pay the musicians. I, I sold, you know, I probably sold three to 5,000 copies of that three CD thing. And, and it created this whole aura, you know, that, that I liked and, and it was a pain in the ass to do it, but, but it was really fun. And, and we had a nice run and I could pretty much figure out how much I could spend. It was a pretty consistent thing sales wise. You know, mm-hmm. I did Ducre's records, Django Bates record, Michael Foreman act, Julius. And I kind of could predict pretty easily how many I would sell and people were really fired up. Then the stealing thing happened and the download and, you know, that idiotic, whatever that, who that first guy was, who's a now bazillionaire. Right. You know, I don't know why people thought, I do know why, but some way along the line, everybody forgot that we were, this was our job. <laughs> you know, it wasn't just like a, Hey, I think I'll make some music and sit around and, you know, since I don't have a job. So, so, you know, and I, I kind of bought into it for a minute, but then I thought, wow, this is like all our fans are basically not all of them, but a lot of them can are justifying this whole thing of stealing, you know, getting free downloads and bit torrents and all that. And, and, uh, it killed the business. I mean, mm. and I, and, and I think. The, a lot of them justify, they'll say, oh, well, this, this label's part of a corporation, so fuck that. Or this guy's a rich pop musician. But still, you know, you're stealing somebody's, where do you draw the line? You know, why don't you steal some paintings while you're at it and steal a book or two? And, uh, since, you know, no one else is getting paid, why should you get paid for your job? You know, let's make everything free. So, I mean, it's pretty silly and it, it worked, you know, and the, and the, Record companies did it too, you know, they bought into it and then, you know, they invented all these devices that make it almost nobody want to listen to a record at home. So, I mean, everybody's complicit and the artists, you know, who said right on, you know, it's promotion. It's like, Jesus, what other job can you think of where you can say that? You know, I say, I'm going to go to work and promote myself today. 
it's okay if I don't get paid. At least they'll know I'm good, you know. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. So I've become a little bit militant about it lately because I could I stopped making studio records because mm. I was selling 800 instead of 2,500, you know. And, and so that's what people are losing. Do they care? I don't know, you know. Or people like Steve Byram who are scrambling to get work because no one wants to pay to have cover art anymore. Or they all think they can do it themselves with these devices, you know. And so uh, I think it's a drag, you know. And, and uh, um, you know, and then I, I got on, I got involved. There was some online thing. Somebody mentioned ECM and saying, I don't mind getting BitTorrents of ECM things because they're just some jive corporation. And that's where I kind of finally responded. I just said, man, you have no idea. You know, that's like couldn't be further from the truth. You know, this is a guy who's so serious about the music, gets you the best instruments, best studios, pays people well, and and then actually promotes the music. You know, it's like, how can you say that? You know, people are so uneducated about it. And then somebody responded by, you know, saying, you know, a lot. most people were agreed with me, but some people were saying, well, it's not good for the ecology and blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, so... What about paint? What about computers? Are they good for the, you know, what's in a computer? You know what I mean? It's like, where do you, okay, so let's not do anything. Instead of paintings, let's just download, you know, not, let's not use paint. You know, I'm, I mean, it gets absurd, but, but, uh, but it was interesting because no one said, you know, no one disagreed with me really mm. about it. No one had thought about it, it seemed like, that were, that who weren't musicians. And then you even have musicians, you know, you have people doing promotional shit for this mega upload idiot. And this guy's got like 20 cards. He you know, it's like, Jesus. Yeah, right on. You know, power to the person. I'm just thinking, God, you know, why would you be supportive of that? And I know everyone wants to get free movies. I know everybody does it, you know. But uh, even movies, you know, it's like, Everybody bitches out. Ah, there's no good movies anymore. Gee, I wonder why. You know, why would you put out? Why would you give money to someone to make a weird movie when you know, no one's gonna go to. And no one's. It's not even gonna get a theater. You know, so yeah. I mean, it's really a chain reaction, and and it's very short sighted to just see it as well, I'm just taking something that these guys spend billions and, you know, da 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 da. But it's gonna kill the whole thing. Is this a genie that can't be put back in the bottle, do you think, at least for the music industry? Well, I think more people say what I'm saying, not that I'm any big deal, but, I mean, if more musicians actually said that out loud to their fans, at least mm. at our level, I think it would make a difference. The pop guys, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think anybody has sympathy for these guys, but, you know, they're doing something. I mean, it's, if, it's creative. You know, most of it's pretty creative, or most of these people have you know, some kind of talent. I mean, they don't deserve to, they shouldn't have to give it away. No one else has given their work away. Yeah. You know, it just seems like it's artists should give it away. And, you know, in a lot of cases, so, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think the devices is even worse, you know, just the, now that the iPod thing, it's like, Jesus, you know, does anybody care? Does anybody care what sequence your record's in? You know, that's for me. That's that's a bummer. You know, that was all. Manfred still acts like everybody listens to the record from first song to the last in consecutive order on vinyl with good speakers. With any of that. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> you just you go into these mixes. He agonizes over the order. That's why I like it. You know, 
He agonizes over the mix. The records come out. There are no downloads for several months, which is marketing suicide, but he doesn't care, you know. He wants people to, you know, and the packages and so forth, you know. And it's a bummer for the packaging for me, you know, like with my stuff. It's like, man, you know, that's half the fun. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if the... You know, now that all the record stores are gone, I doubt it can be put back in the bottle. But if I had a record label now, if I was just a, a record label, um, I don't probably only do mail order. Hmm. And I'd really focus on bands that, that do gigs. You know, which is what, which is what ECM does. I mean, with, you know, if I wasn't doing a tour now, it would be a whole different thing. You know, that's the promotion, not not the ad and downbeat. Sure. That's just feathering, you know, that's that's sort of a necessary evil. But but doing these gigs, that's you know, that's that's how you promote a record, I yeah. think. Uh, let's let's make that segue. Tell folks about the upcoming tour. Oh yeah, we're doing a, a states tour in February, east and west, and then a Europe tour in March. Um, the state, I mean, there's a lot of cities, but sure, East Coast, DC, Baltimore, New York, and DC, Baltimore, New York, and Boston, and then West Coast is well, it's Austin, Texas, and then and then uh, LA. Santa Cruz, San Francisco, Eugene, Portland, and Seattle, and then Europe's all over the place. Great. Well, you mentioned uh, that you had about five sets of music for this band, and obviously you chose a, just a small portion of that mm-hmm. for this record. So on these tours, do you bring out the entire Yeah, yeah, I like to mix book? it up. I have a way of, you know, if you have a really good night, I usually don't play those tunes the next night. Mm. I usually rest them. There's a, some kind of voodoo about you know, when you have a really incredible version of something that the next night, if you play it, it's going to be a disaster because everybody's thinking about it, you know. And so I have enough music, so I just kind of move it around. I think it keeps people on their toes, you know, in the band, me. Um, hardest thing is to find a good opener. Mm. It's always been an enigma for me. What constitutes a good opener? Well, 
For me, it's something where you can get used to the sound, something where it's where you have some time to get used to the sound and and something that's not doesn't something doesn't have to happen right away. It mm. doesn't have to be like it doesn't have to hit you over the head. Does that mean the composition can carry it? You mean it doesn't have to happen? Well, it just doesn't have that? to be exciting right away or be, you know, like you don't want to come, you know, I don't want to throw in the big hard hitting whatever that people have in their books. Right. Um, I don't like starting with tunes like that where it's just like, bam, right into it. I like, I like something a little more nebulous, but also just getting used to the sound of the room. Mm. Um, and something that's, you know, it's, it's hard to start a concert. You know, you never know how it's going to sound. And so if there's a tune, if you play, if you start with something that where you really have to have great, perfect acoustics to be able to play that tune, sometimes it's a disaster because you can't hear, you know, it always takes a minute to adjust. Sure. Either whether you're using monitors or not, or because the sound really changes when people are in the room. So you can't really gauge that during a sound check. So do you change live sets on the fly kind of based on what you're hearing in those early pieces? Yeah. But, but there's so many pages to these tunes. It's kind of a right. pain in the ass. Stick out the 12 Okay, let's score. do this other one. Everybody's going, <laughs> you know, it's like 20 minutes later. Oh, there it is. You know, that's the one problem. Even in my book, I, nothing has the title on it. You know, I'm just looking through. Oh, I recognize that. You know, <laughs> So it's really kind of embarrassing. And then you pull it out and there's this <laughs> giant thing, you know. That's great. My guest is Tim Byrne. His new project on ECM is called Snake Oil, and the band is about to embark on a tour of the U.S. and in Europe. And uh, it's been a real honor and a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for doing it. Thanks, Jason. That's music from Tim Byrne and his new CD, Snake Oil. Please do check the show notes for this show at thejazzsession.com and get the link to Tim's website where you'll find his tour dates because Snake Oil is on tour now, and trust me, you're not going to want to miss this band. I'm Jason Crane, and this is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Thanks so much for listening. Please do become a member if you can afford it. The show is free, and it always will be. It's important to me that anybody can hear it, no matter what your income level is. But it is even, well, not even more important. It is equally important to me that it keep going. And for that to happen, I need you to become a member. You can do it for as little as $10 a month or $110 a year if you prefer to pay in one lump sum. And then there's also a 25 250 monthly yearly level and a 50 500 monthly yearly level. At that middle or top level, monthly or yearly, you'll get the Anthony Wilson DVD CD set seasons. 
And at the top level, monthly or yearly, you'll become an official sponsor of the show, and you'll be mentioned on every program, just like Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. That's a great way to get your name out there if you'd like, and it's an even better way to support, I think, I think, the only independent jazz interview podcast out there, five years almost, and counting. So that's it for today. Please do go out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back here next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye.